And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Like any good college student looking to waste their money, I studied film theory. Uh, now, obviously, I don't really think this is a waste of money because I think that there is a very there's a there's a high amount of value in looking at the, the stories and and really when when you're talking about cinema, um, American cinema, and in cinema really all over the world, you're talking about the stories that really unite the culture. And sometimes that's world culture. Sometimes that's localized into just the country or even the city, depending on on where these things are filmed. And today I'm talking with Robert Sullivan IV. And he's taking, uh, he takes a more broad view. He looks for mystic, occult, um, and really th- stories that have kind of existed throughout the ages, these through lines, these, these um, kind of ideas, thought patterns that exist in, in modern stories that really harken back to the beginning of storytelling in general. And he finds these really cool, mystic, hidden meanings behind all of these movies. And I think that's really the key here. I think, you know, especially in the modern era, we really love these Easter eggs, these little hidden meanings, these little nuggets that the directors put in these movies. And you kind of feel like you're part of the crowd if you can find them and notice them. And even take it to a next level is when you find them to be able to connect the dots and create the meaning that either the author intended, um, the author being the director, or any other strong personality behind the film, or whether they didn't intend intend it, and it's just this kind of the natural evolution of story. Uh, I find this stuff completely fascinating, and and we're going to get into all of that uh, with the author of Cinema Symbolism and Cinema Symbolism 2, Robert Sullivan IV Esquire. How are you doing today, sir? I'm well, Daniel. How are you? I'm doing all right, man. So do you introduce yourself like that, the full the full thing? No. I just introduce myself as, you know, I'm Rob, you know, is what I usually go under, but, you know. I'm going to call you the big four, because you don't see a lot of forts these days. So that's, I mean, that's a long line. That's pretty impressive. Well, thank you. So it's a great-grandfather, grandfather, father, you. You got it. The grand, great grandfather and grand grandfather and great grandfather are deceased. It's me and my father. He's the third, so uh, I'm the fourth. Uh, now you don't see a lot of fifths. Are we gonna? Are you gonna look for a fifth, or is this is this gonna be it? Well, I don't know. That still remains to be seen. <laughs> you know, uh, um, I, I have. It's funny because I actually have a friend of mine who I went to Gettysburg College with, who was the fifth. Um, and you know, you know, he actually, you know, outranked me. His name, you know, he had the fifth one. So <laughs> it, it's, it's few, it's few and far between that you find that. No, it totally is. I mean, fourths are very difficult. There's a couple thirds. Um, there's a loud yeah. junior that lives by me, but, but fourths and fifths, man, you don't find them very often. Um, and I love, I love Esquire because I was a fan of Bill and Ted and I'm sure you've seen the movie, but, um, sure. you know, it's, it's, uh, Bill S. Preston Esquire. And I always wondered, like as a kid, I didn't know what Esquire meant. And then as you get older, you're like, oh, they're a lawyer. That's so funny. Um, And then it kind of dawned on me, like the magazine Esquire has nothing to do with law. Like, what's up with that? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. But yeah, it's just just denoting a lawyer. 
Um, and I just kind of threw it on the back. I mean, probably could have lived without it, but you know, what the hell? <laughs> Dude, you earned it, man. Keep it on there. Yeah, it's exactly the way I see it. <laughs> so I'm super excited to talk about movies and symbolism because like, th this really brings me back to college, right? Because I studied film and TV. And so I spent, you know, countless hours talking about like the hidden symbols and like what the, you know, what the directors meant and, you know, everything like that. So this is this is a pretty fun thing for me. Um, typically in school, you you know, you talk about like lighting and sound and and, all, you know, basically like film theory, but you don't get into like the symbolism, which I think is there in a lot of movies. Um, and also, I think that it's prone for to, to over analysis, uh, which we'll get to as well, which I think is a fun challenge to kind of um, see what the director really meant versus what they didn't mean. Um, but let, let's talk about your academic background first, because uh, like you're kind of an expert in this. Right. Um, well, you know, I went to um, Gettysburg College. I, I was a history major there. Um, I have a law degree. Um, I'm a lawyer. I'm a Bard lawyer. Um, I became interested in this material um, really in my junior year of college was, was sort of when the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the acorn was planted that grew the mighty oak. Um, I spent my <laughs> junior year abroad um, at Oxford University, and this is where I really got interested in sort of secret societies, esoterica, the occult. Um, I was an associate student at Oxford University at St. Catherine's College. I'd always been interested in this material growing up. I was a huge fan of the old In Search of show with Leonard Nimoy. So, you know, I, I, this was just something that always fascinated me. And uh, I, I parlayed this research into my first book, which was The Royal Arch of Enoch. Um, and, and the final chapter of that had to do with Masonic symbolism in, in film. And there was more uh, things I wanted to talk about. So... Um, you know, when I got done that chapter, I just started writing cinema symbolism. And then, of course, there was more, uh, you know, things I was interested in um, writing about other movies. So I made that into cinema symbolism, too. So, yeah, I mean, I, I have really no I mean, I don't have a background in like, you know, cinema or, you know, theater or anything like that. It was just really taking this um, symbolism that I guess was self-taught, you know, in ancient religion and things like that and just applying it at first to material culture with the Masonic book. And then I just really turned it on movies. So, you know, I, I think it came out well and I'm really proud of it. And, uh, yeah, there you go. Well, I mean, it's, it's a great book. And what's, what's funny is that, you know, when, when it comes to movies, there's, it's like, no, you know, the whole adage in Hollywood is every story has been told, you know, and right. it, it, it's interesting when you start looking at movies, you start looking at just storytelling, the history of stories, it's it's kind of funny how like the same stories get recycled over and over and over again and how you know what does that mean you know and I, I wonder if like people have stumbled upon like human like civilization right like human beings have stumbled on some fundamental like truths that exist throughout mankind and those are kind of boiled down into the fundamental stories that we see over and over again which I think is kind of what you get to in these books when you're talking about the symbolism and the stories I think you're because you're kind of under every single movie kind of underlies some you know old story that has the same meaning you know what I mean yeah, you, you get into a lot of when you're dealing with uh, like the Hollywood blockbuster, you are definitely dealing with the Joseph Campbell monomyth, the hero's journey. You know, th this is a recycled, um, uh, you know, template. Um, it deals with a lot of comparative religion. And, I, I, you know, these elements all but always turn up in some movie, in, in most movies, even if it's not the hero's journey in some form or fashion. Uh, you know, you know, when you get into the hero's journey stories, you know, you're, you're, you're looking at like the Matrix, Star Wars, 
um, uh, Lord of the Rings, the Harry Potter, the Chronicle of Narnia. I mean, all in all, these stories are, are just sort of a recycling of this. Um, you, you will find these elements over and over again. Uh, and, and I think Campbell was very good with this because, you know, you know, although, you know, when, when you get into those type of movies, you'll find a lot of the components, you know, contained therein. But even if, it, if it's not a hero's journey story, the, these elements, almost one or two of them, even three, four of them always seem to turn up from time to time, um, no, no matter what, what it is. Um, and and I, I found myself with this. Uh, I, I was uh, over the summer. Um, I was finishing off my first work of fiction, which has nothing to do with the hero's journey. Um, it's not it's not mirroring that at all. But no matter, you know, I, I almost found myself applying or incorporating certain components of this thing. Um, and it's, it's, it seems like it's unavoidable almost. Right. That, yeah. You know, no matter what it is, um, you, you will find these components coming out of compare ancient mythology, you know, turning up in modern storytelling. Um, it, it may not always be the same thing over and over again, but but they seem to turn up, and it seems unavoidable almost um, in my in my experience. Well, you know, it's funny because there's even like a postmodern element. I was just watching this uh, cartoon, Rick and Morty. I don't know if I don't know if you've seen it or heard of it. It's a great cartoon, and so there's this beacon that's beeping, and Morty, who's the kid, it's basically like a Back of the Future kind of um, take. You know, there's like a smart doctor, and then there's like a kid. And right. so there's this beacon going off, and there's you know he's like, oh, it's the it's the superhero group, and he, and Rick, who's a consummate cynic, is like, I refuse to answer a literal call to action, you know, which is kind of like a you know it's a it's a nod to the hero's journey, you know, the call sure, to action, sure. which is just funny because it's my point is it's so prevalent that it's even like almost postmodern where people are referencing it in a you know in a very meta way to bring attention to it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh... And it's interesting because, like I said, I was working on this work of fiction, which has which has nothing to do with the hero's journey. Um, at least I don't think it does. Um, but, you know, you know, along the way, when writing it, you th I'm doing it. I think, oh, well, there's the supernatural aid, uh, you know, component. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's mm -hmm. the refusal of the call element. Um, and, it, and it seems almost like it's unavoidable no matter what you do. You know, you can almost I think Campbell was very good with this. Um, I know I know he's, I know he has his critics out there, but it, it seems like these components, at least in piecemeal, at very at, at least, um, turn up in some form or fashion. Well, I'll tell you, there's academics out there just to you know just to write a paper and just for discussion who will criticize anything, which you know you sure. can't really you can't really fault oh, them yeah. for that. That's part of the academic process. But when it comes to stories and when it comes to cinema, specifically movies. Um, which cinema and movies are the same thing? I do know that. But when you, when it comes to those types of things, this formula works like beautifully. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, you you will find um, the, these You know, if, if you read the hero, the hero with a thousand faces by Joseph Campbell. I mean, Lucas in Star Wars didn't even shy away from it. I mean, he's admitted it, you know, all over the place. In fact, with the Campbell copy I have here, well, the heroes of here with a thousand faces i mean i think on the, even on the on the dust jacket it has a uh you know like a little review by you know george lucas <laughs> forward by yeah <laughs> right yeah, forward so, by know, george here, lucas you know here's where here's where star wars came from essentially so uh -huh. yeah yeah i mean I, no, no doubt about it when, when you're dealing with those type of stories the hero's journey um you know when, when it becomes apparent that that's you know what these what the movie is based upon those components are become very easy to pick up on 
Now let's get into. So what I want to do is talk about like what you're looking for. So we're going to talk about some of the the symbolism you're looking for, and then we're going to do some examples. Um, and so so Hero's Journey is one of the types of movies. Right. And so I, I believe there's three others. There's uh, Masonic, there's Alchemist, and then there's Gnostic. Uh, so what does each one of those mean, and have I missed any? Right. Well, I want I want to go so far as to like just break them down into subcategories. I mean, you know, each move. The way I would say it is, I wouldn't I wouldn't categorize um, a movie into those four. I mean, I think you know certain movies can have religious aspects. You know, what you would call a cult. You know, Christianity or Catholicism. So I I wouldn't. Um, pigeonhole um, movies just on like four categories or anything. Ultimately, for me, is 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 in order to do the breakdown. Sort of my methodology is to see what it is. Um, I, I'm lo- you know you know is is to look at the larger picture of it. You know what am I dealing with? Um, and it's it's that is even in of itself not easy to do. But am I you know like you said am I dealing with a Gnostic movie? Am I dealing with a Masonic movie? Am I dealing with a religious movie? Um, am I dealing with a comparative religion, you know, m- movie that may be based on a, a, a mythology or a, a religious study of some kind? I, I think of like the Back to the Future films. Um, th- that to me is like the first thing that I kind of look for, assuming it's even there. Um, many movies um, do not incorporate this imagery at all. Uh, and, and that does not necessarily make them a, a bad movie per se, but um, you know, not not all movies um, can contain this, and I, I couldn't do it on on some movies. But you know, I guess for me is what once I pick up on that, there's like a greater maybe hidden meaning within this thing, and I, and I can I can pick up on it. Um, and some movies on its surface are are, are very esoteric and, and are much more easier to pick up on, on, on than, than others. Um, then then it's okay, you know, what am I dealing with? And and they can be multi layered as well. Um, it, it may be more than one thing. Um, then, then at that point in time, I, I begin looking at the movie, you know, rewatching it, watching it over again. You know, I mean, I literally sit there, uh, Dan, with, you know, a, a notepad in front of me with a pen, just making notes. Um, it can be very arduous. A lot of times you're constantly moving around from the end of the movie to the beginning of the movie. Um, the littlest, tiniest things can be tweaked, uh, in, in a film that, that can have meaning and, um, you know, it's it's just watching the movie over and over again with you know numerous times for me to be able to pick up on it. Then I just begin outlining it and and writing it. But you know, each movie has to be looked at. I wouldn't say for the movies, there's no like overarching theme. I wouldn't pigeonhole the movie into any specific categories. Although the ones you've named, you know, are very popular, no doubt about it. Um, and then it's just you know l- looking at it and then and then taking it from there. Well, I, I wasn't trying to pigeonhole the movie itself. It's more like like through lines. So you know, right, when you're sure. talking about I mean, the, those are those are big through lines. I mean, the ones you name, right? But, but that that's not all incorporate encompassing as well. I guess is the only point I was trying to make. Sure, I was just trying to explain them so that when when we when you talk about like Gnostic elements, what does that mean? When you talk about alchemist elements, like right, what sure, does that mean? Sure, sure I understand. Um, so when we talk, so what do they mean? So like, like a Gnostic is really about enlightenment, right? So it's about, um, you know, achieving under a, a higher understanding is, is that right. is, is pretty close to it? Yeah. When you're dealing with a Gnostic film, you're, you're dealing with elements. Um, I mean, you're dead give, I mean, higher understanding, consciousness, expansion, divine spark ignition, um, purpose and re- purpose in life, um, revelation, um, you know, your dead giveaway for a Gnostic movie is anytime you're dealing with a false reality um, or the reality is, 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 is not necessarily the truth. Um, that that is a dead giveaway for a Gnostic film, but it, it is, it's not the, the only thing. 
um, anytime you're dealing with like a journey of self-discovery, you, you know, you could um, you could categorize it or at least put it under maybe a general umbrella of Gnosticism. Um, I mean, the, the, the big Gnostic movie uh, movies, you know, that come to mind are The Matrix, you know, Fight Club, uh, The Truman Show, certainly. Um, but then, then you would get into other other films that, you know, I mean, the, the, those are the ones where they really question reality. I mean, especially Truman Show and, and, and Fight, excuse me, Truman Show and The Matrix. I mean, th those are two probably the, 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 the godfathers of the Gnostic films. But other other movies that you could do, call perhaps decidedly Gnostic, you know, or Journeys of Self-Discovery, um, you know, The Wizard of Oz could fall into that category. Uh, you know, Alice in Wonderland could fall into that court category in, in Cinema Symbolism 2. Um, I go so far as I said, I, I don't know if I necessarily call it a Gnostic film, but uh, 1979's The Warriors certainly flirts with Gnosticism. So, yeah, um, that, that is, um, you know, you know, what I would kind of just put under the general umbrella of a Gnostic film. I love the flirting with Gnosticism. That sounds very cute. Uh, and, and the alchemy, like so, an alchemy's of, uh, like an alchemist type of movie. I, this was fascinating to me because people know, you know, it's turning lead into gold. But the higher part to that is it's it's similar to Gnosticism in that it's about a revelation, but it's basically about turning ignorance into enlightenment, base metal into gold, which I found very fascinating. Which there are subtle differences between that and a Gnostic movie, although they do sound similar. That, that's correct. Um, that's absolutely correct. Um, you know, th these are two 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 themes that run side by side, that run parallel. Um, an alchemy, an al alchemical movie, I would describe. I mean, you know, you talk about you know Renaissance alchemy, medieval alchemy. You know, you're correct, changing base metal into gold. Of course, symbolically changing ignorance into wisdom. Uh, you know, your alchemical films are generally where the person. Um, I, I would call these a journey of like transformation, where the the, the character starts as one thing and then changes usually negatively um into something else where where it, 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 with a not i mean it, it is because it's um it, 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 they kind of run parallel with gnostic films but it's a little different where you say to yourself like you take a character like dorothy gale from the wizard of oz or something where you say um okay well where she goes to this magical land has this uh, magical journey uh, a journey of self-revelation where at the end she has the epiphany for her which is there's no place like home so has she changed and the answer is you know has she undergone an alchemical transformation for her the answer is sort of no mm -hmm. she's she's a, a decidedly the same person she's just wiser for it again you think of something like alice in wonderland where she goes on the magical journey ultimately is the same character, but it's just wiser off. Um, whereas a, an alchemical film, you take a character such as Jack Torrance in The Shining, who starts as one thing, undergoes a transformation. And again, it's usually negative in, in these movies. Um, and then by the end of the film is completely something else. In the case of The Shining or Jack Torrance, he's a full-blown psychopath. Um, so th that's what you're dealing with alchemical films most of the time. Of course, you actually will find uh, and again, uh, not to sound too cliche with this, the actual alchemical film, you know, where you actually have the alchemist trying to transmit, transmute, um, you know, the, the metallic substance, you know, Goldfinger by, by James Bond, mm -hmm. where Art Goldfinger is actually trying to transmute quite literally the gold in Fort Knox using a symbolic philosopher's stone. In this case, it would be the uh, nuclear, the dirty nuclear bomb um, to actually transform the gold. 
quite literally, to make it worthless and to make his uh, gold supply more valuable. So, I mean, that would actually be alchemy on the screen. That's probably the closest thing to actual an alchemical movie I could think of. But yeah, Gnosticism and alchemy, they do run parallel, but there are subtle differences. You know, it's fine. I I guess I didn't realize that it was that the end of an alchemical movie was about was was negative, you know? Because, I mean, you mentioned Black Swan, which is a great example oh, yeah. as well. But it, I, I, I guess I didn't realize it was a, a negative, because enlightenment seems like something that would be positive, you know? Because you tie gold into positive light, you know, a lot of those symbols. So right. I guess I didn't realize that. Well, here's the thing with it. It's, um, you know, you know, the alchemical change can be positive. Uh, you know, it, it, you know, it's, um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a fine line. Uh, like a, like the Black Swan movie is is a great example with this. Um, oh, you think of a movie like, um, you know, almost like Jacob's Ladder, which is which is alchemical because he's sort of changing and it's more and he does have a positive uh, revelation at the end of it. Um, you know, when you're dealing with, you know, it, 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 you're right. Renaissance alchemy, it is positive. It's it's changing ignorance into wisdom. Hollywood likes to turn it into negative. Um, hmm. I, don't, I don't know why that is. Okay. Uh, you, you know, you know, it's it's it's, it's when, when the character undergoes a positive change, it's usually more Gnostic than it is alchemical. Hmm. Um, you know, but but like with the Black Swan character, I mean, you could say, well, she she achieves perfection, uh, but it's at a very costly price. So. Um, you know, it, it's, it, it, it is a pot, you know, she sees it as sort of positive, but it's ultimately negative. So it is sort of a fine line when, when the character is positively effective, it seems to be more Gnostic when it's negative. It just seems to be more alchemical. Um, I don't know why Hollywood, Hollywood does that. Um, but, but that just seems to be, to be, to be the way it is, um, when Hollywood makes movies. Um, you know, I, I can't really account for it. That's really funny. Uh, I mean, I guess it's art imitating uh, life, or maybe it's reflecting their own dark, seedy underbelly. Who knows? Yeah, uh, you know, you, I, I think of just real quick. I think of something like um, you know, you, you get into like Kabbalistic imagery and Hebrew Kabbalah, which ties into al- you know alchemy as well. The the use of magical um, names and, and numbers to 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 transmute and 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 mm-hmm. have um, you know you know you know, have alchemical change. Um, and you do have an, you know, what you would call left-hand path Kabbalah, sort of the negative side of it. I mean, you can't have light without dark, positive without negative. And, um, I I tend to agree with you, Dan. I I think Hollywood is much more fascinated, um, for whatever storytelling purposes with left-hand path more than right-hand path. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, but you, you bring it, you know, bring up a good point there because a lot of the stuff that, that kind of, so those are like the, those are like some of the themes that you can find in these movies. And there's interesting ways to achieve those themes. And I think what's really important at this particular point to note is that it's really only cinema symbolism with, if what you see on screen was manipulated by the people creating the film. I mean, story elements themselves kind of exist into perpetuity, right? Like they're, infinite's a strong word, but they've existed forever. So it's not the storylines themselves. It's the, the things you see on screen, because as anyone who studied film knows, anything on screen is absolutely for a purpose. There are no accidents. I mean, in a good movie, obviously. Right. Uh, I tend to agree with that. Um, you can have accidents, um, but but I, I tend to agree with you. Um, and and the, the movie makers, the, the producers, the directors, are I think are much more adroit and much more knowledgeable um, with this material than they let on. Uh, 
and I, I believe it's completely intentional, but you, you know, th these guys really seem to know what they're doing. Um, and I even talk in the book, you know, it, you know, how to account for it. If it is a coincidence, you know, I get into, you know, like Plato with the theory of forms and, and Jung with the collective unconscious. Mm -hmm. But yeah, these guys, these guys are very masterful with symbolism, some more than others, of course. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I think, um, you know, you know, if you saw this stuff once or twice, I think you could maybe chalk it up as a, as a coincidence. But when you see it over and over again and just and just how you know, almost sacred it is to these guys. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, good school, good movie making, um, good storytelling. Um, these guys know what they're doing and, and they do incorporate the symbolism into their films. I mean, I, 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 I mean, I wouldn't have written two books about it if I wasn't convinced, um, otherwise. Right. And probably have a manuscript for a third. Uh, I, do. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. Um, now let's talk about one thing that you mentioned that I don't think a lot of people talk about, but is extremely valid and very interesting to look at. And that is casting for occult purposes where you kind of are casting people, um, based on previous roles. Um, and you kind of looked in this a little bit. It's very interesting. It is very interesting. And I'm glad you brought this up because this is a fascinating, uh, talking point. Um, what, what, um, I, I first started noticing this. I, first, I noticed it once, uh, when I was writing the first book with, with, uh, the first cinema book, cinema symbolism. And I, I and it, the way, the way it came about was it was the second matrix movie. It was the character uh, portrayed by Anthony Zerby. Um, and he played a, I think a character named chancellor or councilman Harriman, something to that effect. And it's in, it's in the second matrix movie. And, uh, he, he it's a scene there where, Zerby is talking to Neo and he's talking about how Zion is the last bastion of hope and humanity and has to be protected of all costs. And, you know, we got to protect it against the machines and the matrix is no good. And, you know, you know, yada, yada, yada. And I remember watching this movie and I, I just, I just stuck in my crawl. And I remember saying to myself, I've seen this before. Um, you know, I've seen, I've seen this, this scene before. And sure enough, it, it comes out of another movie, which I very much like. Uh, it, it comes out of a movie called The Omega Man, made several years earlier. I think The Omega Man came out in 71, starring Charlton Heston. Uh, and and in, in that movie, Zerby plays the villain. In, in The Matrix Reloaded, he plays sort of a hero, uh, a, a mentor to the Keanu Reeves character, Neo. In... Um, in, the, in, in, the, in uh, the, the Omega Man, he plays a villain. He plays a character called Matthias, who is this uh, mutated uh, albino. The, 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 the humanity has been wiped out, for lack of a better word. Charlton Heston is the last bastion of man, mankind. He's hiding up in this well-fortified hotel room. And Zerby is talking to his disciples. And he gives this exact speech that he gives in The Matrix, only it's reversed. He says, Hal Heston is the last hope for mankind. We have to destroy him. We have to destroy, you know, the, the, everything associated with him, his art. You know, he's the last guy. We've got to get up there. We've got to find a way to breach this hotel room and get up there and just eradicate this guy. Um, and, of course, if you're familiar with the, not, with, uh, the Matrix films, um, they are decidedly Gnostic. I mean, they're, they're you know, I mean, they are... Valentinian and Manichaean from start to finish. And of course, one of the key components with, uh, with Gnostic is, is the idea of the union of opposites, dualism, male and female, negative and positive, light and dark. So to, re to re have this role reversal, um, this dualistic role reversal with, uh, with, with Zerby is, is, is very Gnostic. I mean, and this, this mm -hmm. dovetails the context of these movies beautifully. Um, it's, it's sublime. It, it's very, very well done by the Wachowskis. When I first started noticing this, Dan, I thought this was very remote. Um, I thought this was extremely rare. 
Um, but the more I watch movies, the more I notice that this seems to be more, um, more, more, more commonplace uh, than I at first anticipated. Uh, another movie that, um, that 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 used this is uh, the, the the last Star Wars movie, uh, The Force Awakens, with Max von Sydow, um, and this was fascinating to me. Um, and when I when I talk about this in the books, I want people to understand. I want your listeners to understand. This is much more than typecasting or just casting Bella Lugosi over and over again to play the boogeyman. Um, this is really a, really a form of sorcery that these guys are doing because the casting of these actors and actresses. It's really a form of conjuration because it's conjuring to your subconscious mind these earlier pictures, and it's implanting these cultural valances in your head uh, that these that these actors bring to their films. Von Sydow is is a, another fascinating uh, study with this in, in the last Star Wars movie, where at the very beginning he's on the desert planet talking to the to the one hero. And uh, the First Order shows up, and Von Sydow goes out and confronts Kylo Ren and gets struck down. And it, it, again, this just stuck in my craw. I couldn't quite figure out. I, I like the movie, and I, I, I remember watching it several times. I have it here on Blu-ray, and I remember thinking to myself, um, I, I didn't understand why Von Sydow was cast in this part where really anyone could have you know, been, been put there. Uh, it was only five minutes. I'm watching it over and over again. It just hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, where have I seen this before? And sure enough, it's a uh, replication of the opening scene of two earlier movies, uh, both very powerful. Uh, the first one was The Exorcist, where Von Sydow, as the hermit figure again, uh, you know, is on the desert, is in the desert, and goes out and confronts the statue of Pazuzu, the demon, uh, and, you know, heralding the, the coming evil. Um, and then it was uh, another film, Dune, where Von Sydow, again, as the hermit figure, is, on the, is in the desert, on Arrakis, on the Dune planet, uh, in the desert, and is confronting the dark evil lord, Baron Harkonnen. Um, so, you know, what what putting him in that Star Wars movie is actually doing is it's conjuring the exorcist and it's conjuring uh, Dune uh, by David Lynch. And it's really investing the first order Kylo, Kylo Ren and the first order with both the demonism of Pazuzu and the savagery of the Harkonnens. I mean, that's really well done. I mean, that's really craftsmanship by the, by the filmmakers. And like I said, when I first um, started analyzing this, I thought this was very rare, um, but I've subsequently noticed um, you know, if you get a director and you get a movie maker who really knows what they're doing, um, this seems to be uh, much, much more commonplace. I I've noticed it in other movies and, and even TV shows uh, since writing the books. And um, yeah, it, it really is, Dan. It it's really a form of uh, cinematic sorcery is, is a really good way to describe it. Cinematic sorcery. Well, there's another one in the Star Wars film that you mentioned as well, which is in The Phantom Menace. Um, Pernilla August plays um, oh, Anakin. Anakin's uh, mother, and you know she played the Mary um, Virgin Mary earlier that in that exact same year. Well, that's absolutely right. That's a, that's a, another great example of this. Is Pernella August um, it, it, the the Anakin Skywalker story from episodes one, two, and three is a retelling of the Christ uh, Christ story, uh, and of course Anakin Skywalker, like Jesus, is also virgin birth. Um, this comes out of the Phantom Menace uh, when Liam Neeson. Is, is talking to uh, is talking to her. He says, "Who's the father?" And she says, "Oh, there wasn't one." And and that's fascinating that they that Lucas cast her to play Anakin Skywalker's uh, virgin mother because that's right. Earlier in 1999, 
uh, Pernella August was in a TV series called Mary, the Mother of Jesus, where she played what else but the Virgin Mary. So, again, that's another a great example of, um, you know, a filmmaker, Lucas, using this cultural balance uh, to implant this whole Christ story uh, with Anakin Skywalker in episodes one, two and through three, which, of course, it is. I mean, you know, there, there are lots of parallels. Uh, this is something I talked about in the first movie book, um, you know, a lot of parallels with uh, the Anakin Skywalker story and, and Jesus Christ. Um, and it just makes those movies much more powerful and symbolic as well. Definitely. And and what's also cool is another thing um, which is very similar to that is it is when you have a good movie and you, you have people who've named their characters well, the names of the characters are also very symbolic and they kind of don't hit you right away. Um, you know, one of the examples you use that that I, I should have seen right away, but I didn't is Truman Burbank in The Truman Show. Uh, which is, right. you know, like that's, you, I think you mentioned that, you know, it's a true man, like he's a, a pure, innocent guy and Burbank calls to, calls to mind all the studio films that, you know, studios in, in Burbank, California. Well, that's right. The, the, the Truman, the Truman character, um, that movie is very Gnostic. I mean, you know, you know, if, if when we mentioned earlier in the show about Gnostic cinema, that that's really one of the you know biggies up there. I mean, if you ask me to name off the top five Gnostic movies, Truman Show would be in the top five. I mean, because, you know, you have your whole idea of the false reality of him, you know, living in the false world. You have the creator and fashioner. Um, of the of the false world, the demiurge uh, played by Ed Harris in that named um, Christoph, by the way, and Christoph, right, a reference to Christ, the carpenter, um, and and that comes out of Gnosticism as well. Um, you know, even even the church father, the Christian church father, uh, Justin Martyr, I believe in in some of his writings actually referred to Jesus as the demiurge's son. Um, so that's interesting as well to give him the name of Christoph, Christ. And of course, Truman is living in the false, the false world, and his last name is Burbank, right? I mean, we're just referencing the Hollywood studios. I mean, that's all his life is. It's just a giant Hollywood television production. And then his first name, Truman, right, the true man. I mean, and this is what he's, what he's after. He's after gnosis. He's after knowledge. He wants to find the purpose of his life. He knows something's not right with it. Um, and he, he goes on this spiritual quest, quite literally, uh, to find out who he is and what his purpose is. So, yeah, the name true man, true man or true man um, is just a great name to give him. It's very apropos, very symbolic. And just when, when you're dealing with, you know, again, when you talk about, breaking these movies down and analyzing them. The context is so important because, again, you know, this is a Gnostic film, A Journey of Enlightenment. So his name, Truman or True Man, just dovetails the context of that film beautifully, perfectly well done. Yeah, and one of my favorite examples in television is Fox Mulder. Um, uh, now, when you, I wanted, one thing I want to do really quickly is be, because sometimes you use terms, I want to make sure everyone understands them. What is a demiurge? Right. This is um, this has to do with Gnostic theology. Uh, this is um, you have to be somewhat familiar with the Gnostic religion on this. Um, I don't want to take up too much time with this because this is I mean, this is a deep question. But broad in, strokes. I, Rob. What's that? I said broad strokes, broad, broad strokes. strokes. Right. In, in Gnosticism, there 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 is um, basically two gods. There is a spiritual high God and then there is a God of the material realm. Um, and the god of the material world is a lesser god, um, and he is known as the demiurge. It's a Greek word. I believe it means utility man or maintenance man. Um, the, the demiurge is birthed by something known as an aeon. 
she she is known as Sophia, and she she has a rebellion against the spiritual god, um, which is in, in Gnosticism you'll hear the name Monad uh, thrown around from time to time. But she's cast out. This is paralleling the Lucifer um, fall from grace in, within Christianity, and she's cast down into matter. And as she's being cast down, she births this god of the material world called the Demiurge, um, and he is literally the ruler of all matter and and material and, and materialism. And he runs the universe and he runs the, the world we live in. Um, and he, he's assisted in running it by with, with a series of angels and demons, what are generally known as archons. Um, and that, that comes from a Greek world, word as well, meaning ruler. Um, but they're like humans. Um, they run it imperfectly. They run the universe and they run the material world imperfectly. And the whole idea with Gnosticism is if you engage in spiritual meditation, and the, the, the archons and the demiurge are generally supposed to be rejected. Um, you're not supposed to buy into this. Um, within Gnostic theology. And the idea is if you do certain spiritual exercises, undergo you know, some sort of journey of enlightenment, you, you can have spiritual revelation, sort of what you'd call your Zen moment. And at any rate, by doing this, you can bypass these things and be, be, become one with the spiritual Godhead. Um, this is also ties into ideas relating to Jewish Kabbalah as well. Um, so yeah, when you, when you say the word demiurge, um, you're, you're dealing with a god, the god of the material world. The archons are sort of his henchmen who sort of enforce, enforce his will. I mean, if you want to see this in cinema, the demiurge is the creator of the false world. Kristoff in The Truman Show, we're dealing with the architect. Great name to give this guy in the Matrix films. Of course, the Matrix is the false reality, the false simulation. So, you know, the demiurge, the, the architect has his uh, archons. This is Agent Smith and the agents think uh, the supreme being in Time Bandits. You know, and the Time Bandits would be the archons. They run the uh, world, you know, universe, you know, incorrectly. Um, you know, think, you know, you know, you get into hermetic thought as above, so below. Uh, so, yeah, the, 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 the demiurge and the archons are sort of the enforcers of the material world. And the whole idea behind Gnostic theology, and this is what you'll find in the Truman Show, is, you know, he's, he's looking for spiritual enlightenment. By, by undergoing this quest, you know, for him, he sets out the, on the boat um, to go find himself, quite literally, um, and, and that, that's also interesting. That ties into ties into Druidism, of all things, because um, that was also part of the Druidic mysteries, was to go out in a boat sort of by yourself to, to undergo this spiritual journey to, to sort of find yourself to achieve gnosis, um, which, which is, again, means to know, know thyself. And, uh, you know, you have this Zen moment where... Uh, you, you, you find out your purpose and, and you can kind of bypass or identify uh, sort of the false gods, the material materialism. You know, it's a rejection of materialism, re rejection of consumerism in, in favor of spiritual gnosis. Um, and again, this is just Gnostic theology we're talking about here. Uh, but this is a big theme in Hollywood. Uh, you, you'll find this, you know, very well played in, in Hollywood movies. Well, what's great about this is that you have these existing archetypes, right? So this is the next thing I want to talk about, which I think is important because it, first of all, it makes filmmaking pretty easy because while the characters and actors may change, the archetypes, the, the types of people they're playing remain the same and they're completely familiar. So you mentioned, you know, the hermetic character. Uh, there's, you know, there's characters that are the hermit. Um, I think you right. call it the Hermes tra uh, Trigmagentes. Am I saying that correctly? Uh, Her Hermes, Hermes Trismegistus. Trismegistus. That's, that's a mouthful. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's. I was close. One of my my gimmicks is always mispronouncing things, so uh, <laughs> I make I make you look good. But so these characters, you know, these archetypes um, come up, which makes filmmaking easy. It, you know, this is obviously Jungian philosophy of the archetype. But I think what kind of makes 
what you did special and what brings it into the occult is that I didn't, I didn't realize this and I should have before, you know, before I read this is that you kind of referenced the tarot cards, which essentially were just the archetypes laid out on, you know, on a card, which tells you everything you need to know about that character on the card. That, that's absolutely correct, Dan. Um, you're dealing with when you're dealing with archetypes, you know, an archetypal imagery. Uh, the tarot is a wonderful place to start with this. Um, and again, this isn't some conspiracy theory or some, you know, kooky theory or anything like that. I mean, this comes out of the world of psychology. Carl Gustav Jung wrote about this extensively. Uh, the, ter- the symbolism of the tarot are very archetypal. Um, they are very powerful imagery. I mean, the, the, I mean, you know, the lesser the lesser arcana of the tarot is, is the playing cards, is the 52, you know, cards in, in, in an average deck of cards, which everyone on planet Earth is familiar with in some form or fashion in, in their lives. So the, the, this is a very powerful tool. And when you're dealing with the major arcana, yeah, I mean, I mean, these archetypes, um, I mean, the, the, this, there you have it. I mean, there are the archetypes uh, in, in all their form and fashion. And you mentioned, uh, you know, the hermit card. This is the wizard card. Uh, this is, you know, the Hermes Trismegistus. That's the sort of the god of magic. Uh, this is a deity coming out of Hellenistic Egypt. Um, you know, and if you want to find this archetype on screen, look no forward. I mean, this is the Greybeard. You know, look no forward f- further than Albus Dumbledore and Harry Potter or Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars. Uh, what's the other one? Gandalf. Um, Gandalf, yes, yeah. yes, Gandalf in Lord of the Rings. I mean, they even they all look alike. Right. I mean, it, you know, <laughs> right. it's, it's the old it's the old gray beard who knows everything, but only deal doles out the information, the sacred wisdom piecemeal. Um, you know, I mean, it's the same character over and over again. And uh, yeah, when you're dealing with archetypes and you're you're dealing with archetypal imagery, uh, the tarot is just a wonderful place to start because uh, you know you, you you know you'll find this in movies: the son, the hero, the mother, the lovers. Um, they, there you have it all, all right there. And um, you know the the images on those cards are very powerful. And um, you know it, it's a great it's a great it's a great learning tool um, because when when you I've studied the tarot, I'm fascinated by it. I, I get into it. With masonry, with with Kabbalah as well, because Kabbalah actually also reflects uh, the tarot. Uh, but it, it's a great learning tool, and um, yeah, when it comes to breaking down cinema imagery and occult cinema symbolism, uh, tarot is a good place to start. Well, not even just cinema symbolism, symbolism in general. So, for example, on the Hermit card, you point out in your book that he's carrying a lantern. Now, you know, when you're just looking at the card, it doesn't really make a, you know, it doesn't really may not pop out at you. But what that's saying is, is he's bringing light, he's bringing knowledge. And it's, you know, it's those symbols that convey the higher meaning that are important. So by studying those cards, you kind of have to take in all the nuances because it, it all means something. Oh, absolutely. You're, you're 100% correct. Um, correct. He's carrying the lamp of wisdom, the lamp of knowledge, uh, the light of gnosis. Um, absolutely cor- correct. And again, you know, you, you, you turn to cinema um, and you find the hermit, you know, with the three characters we've mentioned, or even, you know, a character like Morpheus. I mean, I, I think you could, from the Matrix films, I think you could definitely throw him in as, as the wizard uh, Hermes figure as well, Hermes Trismegistus figure. Um, yeah, I mean, these are the guys who bring the light, bring the wisdom, the, the, the you know, wisdom bearer. And uh, the one thing they always seem to have in common is they know everything, but they only give it out when, you know, as needed. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's very archetypical. It comes straight out of the, word of the world of the tarot. And, um, yeah, I mean, I definitely it's it's definitely in movies. And I suppose you could also find it in life as well. Um, I, I was doing another show and uh, someone, th- you know, thought the books helped uh, not only explain cinema symbolism, but also, you know, was a mirror reflection of sort of life symbolism. So very important study. I, I don't dispute that. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, so, so that's a little more concrete and in reality. The, the, one of the things you mentioned are numbers in cinema, like the, sim, uh, sure. the, the importance of numbers, which I feel is like a little more ethereal, at least for me. But I think there's some validity to it. Um, but you find in this, you know, this also ties into playing cards as well. Like you really broke down the numbers of playing cards um, in a way that's fascinating and also very logical and mathematical um, and, and revealed things that I guess I'd always kind of thought but never really knew. Um, but like how perfect, uh, you know, a deck of playing cards is. Right. Well, the deck of playing cards, the 52 cards comes out of the minor arcana of the tarot. Um, but the reason why I, I wouldn't go so far. I mean, I, I agree with what you're saying. It's very important. Um, I wouldn't call it numerology, but the reason why numbers and, and things like that are important within movies, at least from my, my research and my standpoint, is um, a number doesn't lie. Uh, and, and uh, you know, that's, you know, when, when, when the number is used and especially when they start reinforcing it over and over again, um, that that's a good clue that they're trying to tell you something, uh, you know, and, and a lot of times it is just absolutely amazing, um, at least in my research, at least in the movies I broke down, how the number is critical to the film, um, you know, and, and the whole the whole movie revolves around it. Um, and, uh, you know, you know, the number to me, I mean, you know, you know, may not be in every case, of course, a phone number or something like that. But, you know, I mean, I mean, so many times. Um, you know, when you when you're dealing with a number in, in, in film, yeah, I mean, that number can have critical meaning. And a lot of times the, the movie really revolves around it and uh, can help pin down what the uh, movie maker is trying to tell you through the number. Well, an interesting study on that is when you look at a fame, let's say a famous um, adaptation from a book into a movie. Right. So The Shining is a great example for a lot of different things. But for this specifically, you know, room 237. Right. Um, is interesting because in you know famously Stephen King uh, did not like the movie at all, and Correct. Stanley Kubrick is also famously known for adding lots of layers into his movies. Um, and so him specifically, I think it's you know two two oh seven or two seventeen in the book. Um, and I, like- yeah, I don't know if it has any meaning in the book. It's just it's a number. No. I believe I could be wrong, um, but in the movie it's very specific two thirty seven. Right. Right. Um- the, the, the Kubrick uh, version, vision of The Shining, is what I, what I call a, a cinematic temple to repetition. Um, and what Kubrick does in that film is he picks certain numbers and repeats them constantly. Um, and they are just bombarding your subconscious mind over and over again. And why he is doing that is to implant in your head subconsciously and even consciously uh, that the Overlook Hotel is this symbolic Ouroboros, a serpent biting its tail, and, and that the characters, especially Jack Torrance, Jack Nicholson, are, cl- are caught in this never-ending um, reincarnation, recycling um, imagery going on inside the o- Overlook, where everything is just repeating itself. So to convey this, he picks, he picks numbers, and he just bombards your head with them over and over again. 237 is a good example. Um, he, that if you multiply that number up, you get the number 42. The number 42 repeats. Um, the movie that Shelley Duvall and the little boy are watching is the summer of 42. The boy is, has the number 42 on, on his sweater at the beginning of the movie. Scatman Crothers um, is, is uh, driving. And when, when he's driving back to the hotel, the number 42 is on his license plate. Um, if you add the number 237 up, you get the number 12. 12 repeats all over the place. Uh, the, the hotel is KDK 12. 
the two numbers that appear on screen are eight and four. Uh, add them up and you get the number 12. Um, Jack throws the ball against the wall 12 times. Shelly Duvall and the little boy take 12 turns in the hedge maze. Uh, the, the, he hits the door. Jack Torrance hits the door 12 times with the axe. Um, there are what, 12 jugs of black molasses in the storage. Um, and this is a number that just endlessly repeats. I'm just giving some examples. There's many more of them that endlessly repeats. Um, I like in that, in that, in the change that he made to two, three, seven, there is a conspiracy theory out there that this has to do with Kubrick perhaps filming the fake moon landing. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a great documentary about this, by the way, room two thirty seven. That, that's correct. And the idea behind this is Danny stands up with the Apollo 11 sweater on. Right. Uh, and, then, and then he goes to the room 237. And this is the distance in the late 70s from the Earth to the moon was 237,000 miles. To be honest with you, Dan, it's not something I really buy into. The theory is they went to the moon, but they couldn't film there. So Kubrick, the government hired him because of his work on uh, 2001 in Strange Love. To, to film these scenes of the astronauts, you know, kind of jumping around in a sound studio. It's not something I really necessarily buy into, um, but it does have a, a sort of a cult following out there. Uh, but but I, I suggest in the book there could be an, another reason for this, for the for the change to 237. One is, of course, it dovetails uh, perfectly with these this numerology, this these, well, not numerology, this number of repetition uh, going on inside inside the movie. But a few years earlier, just I think it was two years earlier before The Shining came out, uh, uh, there was an Italian filmmaker named Dario Argenta who released a very radical horror movie, um, very stark, very, very scary called Suspiria. Um, and this is a movie that was very well heralded, uh, very well reviewed. And in Suspiria, um, the, there are, there's a parallel uh, between Suspiria and The Shining, which actually, you know, again, fits into the correct context here. Where in The Shining, Jack Torrance goes into the sequestered uh, room and finds the the dark, evil old woman there. And she comes up out of the tub and scares him off, this old, very witchy, evil type woman. In Suspiria, Susie Banyan, the ballerina, same thing happens goes into the hidden room, finds the old witchy woman there. Um, in, in Suspiria, she winds up killing her, but then flees. And um, so, there's, there's, so there's a remarkable parallel going on between Suspiria and, and The Shining. So why am I bringing this up? In Suspiria, uh, the, the flight number that Susie Banyan actually goes to Germany on is actually flight 237, of all things. Hmm. And I think, I think Kubrick may be homaging uh, Suspiria. That that seems logical to me because um, the movies do have some context in common. And and this was a movie that came out, like I said, we're not too far removed from The Shining. Uh, I think it came out two years earlier, uh, perhaps three. But this is a movie that clearly would have been known to Kubrick. And um, I think Kubrick, by changing the room number to 237, not only does it tie into all this uh, number repetition, but also references uh, uh, Argento's Suspiria. Great work there by uh, Stanley Kubrick. Well, you know, and it's what makes this interesting, you know, is that he changed it for a reason. What's the reason? And, you know, I I don't know if I buy into the, the moon landing thing either, but it's really interesting. And when you start looking at all these, I mean, it's why conspiracy theories are fun is because you can't prove them, but they make sense. You know, if you can, when you, and it's the same thing with like cinema symbolism, you know, like it, none of this stuff could be true, but it, there's compelling evidence that it could be. So it's, you know, it's, it's fun to talk about and very interesting to consider. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, if, if the boy stands up with any other sweatshirt on, any other know, sweatshirt, we'll be talking about this, but I mean, there's <laughs> right. the Apollo 11. I mean, there it is. You know, and you got him with the toys, you know, that looks like a little mm -hmm. rocket, exactly. you know, you know, you know, launch pad. 
and then the room number change. So, you know, I mean, is it possible? Yeah, I mean, I mean I'm fascinated by it as well. Like you said, it's not something I'm not necessarily willing to buy into with 100% certainty. I mean, I bring it up in the book for the sake of mentioning it. But yeah, I mean, it's absolutely, I mean, Kubrick definitely changed it for a reason. And I, I couldn't help but notice that 237 in Suspiria, because, mm-hmm. like I said, it, you know, it's context. But um, yeah, the moon landing thing is, is certainly fascinating, no question about it. And even kind of like, now that I'm thinking about it, even moves slowly towards the door, almost like he's floating in space. Like, there's so much going on there. Um, you know, but it's like one of those rabbit holes you can fall down, you know, like any conspiracy theory. But that's why, you know, that's why fan theories on the Internet are so much fun. You know, they're almost like a parody of conspiracy theories because they're the, the conclusions they come to are so ridiculous. But the more compelling evidence they have to support that ridiculous conclusion are what make them so much fun, you know, to sure. consider. Um, so now let's talk about uh, two other things that are very important um, for f- the fundamental understanding of what you're talking about here. And these Again, these are overarching themes, but you talk about the solar hero. Um, now, what exactly do you mean when you're talking about the solar hero? Right. Well, when you're dealing with, with, with a, her- a hero, um, you, know, you know, and again, this ties into sort of the monomyth. Um, these characters are generally, or not generally, they usually are representations of the sun. Um, so, you know, you know, it's, it's the whole idea. It's the Christ archetype. It's the Christ motif. Um, it's, it's, it's the hero. I I, I say it's the sun because, you know, what's the sun do, you know, and it does, it's, you know, light versus darkness, light Mm -hmm. defeating evil. You know, the sun is the enemy of darkness. I mean, what defeats the nighttime sky, the rising sun. Um, it's the whole idea of the solar resurrected God, man. Um, and, and it's an archetype, um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's really the embodiment of the hero in the hero's, you know, monomyth, uh, the hero's journey. He, he always winds up, um, having solar attributes or Christ attributes, um, at some point in time. And of course, when I say Christ, I mean, you know, there's a whole study that, um, the, the whole Christ story is an allegorical retelling of the sun. Uh, this ties into Neoplatonic thought um, with, with parallels with the sun, with astrotheology. So it, it's the whole thing is the Christ as the sun god man um, ar- archetype. You turn to cinema. I mean, we turn to the world of Harry Potter. Uh, you know, Harry Potter's, you know, plucked from the common everyday doldrums of mankind to go do battle with a dark evil lord you know qua satan uh lord voldemort you know harry potter is killed and resurrected i mean he's put into gryffindor uh the symbol for gryffindor is the lion uh this is the symbol of the, the lion is of course a symbol of the sun uh this is leo the lion uh the constellation leo is ruled by the sun it's the sole house of the sun so of course gryffindor symbol is the lion we think of aslan in the Chronicle of Narnia, um, who is, again, a Christ metaphor. You know, when Aslan comes back, what's he doing battle with? With winter, with darkness. Um, and, of course, when he comes back, winter starts to fade away. Uh, we're dealing with Luke Skywalker, um, again, who is plucked from the doldrums of everyday life to go back do battle with dark evil lords, Darth Vader, the Emperor. Uh, the name Luke Skywalker, the name Luke comes from the Latin lux, meaning light. Uh, what light walks across the sky, the sun. Uh, we are dealing with Neo in the Matrix. Again, same theme, you know, character plucked from the doldrums of everyday life to go battle with, do battle with a dark evil lord, Dusex Machina, the, 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 the agents, um, loads of Christ imagery around Neo. 
Um, again, you know, I mean, I, I forget, you know, when he's when he's brought into the Nebuchadnezzar, um, you know, you know, there's there's the nameplate there, which is referencing a, a biblical verse. I think it's Mark three eleven off the top of my head, which says, "Thou art the Son of Man, and will do battle with darkness." I mean, even even the scene where Neo Neo wakes up and is in the in in the real world, he's hoisted cruciform towards the mm-hmm. light. Um, I mean, at the end of at the end of it, he he walks, you know, he flies off into the sky like Jesus. Um, you know, you know, I mean, I mean, Neo is killed and resurrected, uh, very much like Harry Potter is. So yeah, this, this is a very powerful archetype. Uh, you, you know, the, the, the Christ figure, the solar resurrected God, man, uh, very powerful in cinema turns up lots of places. Um, I'm just giving some, some examples here. There are more of them, but uh, a very powerful archetype in cinema and one that, you know, is one that's, I write about a lot because he's in he's in a lot of popular films and is and turns up and Hollywood knows what they're doing. This is, like I said, a very powerful character. So the last broad stroke that I want to talk about to give people the full foundation that they need to really take in your work, the Sophia character, the Minerva, the Pallas Athena, um, powerful female, um, you know, that's kind of set opposite of the solar uh, male character who right. are they right we're dealing with the sacred feminine uh in film uh this is you know that this is a a wide a wide range of female characters she can be the lover she can be the hero uh she can be the philosopher um this is always the sacred you know the, the this in the in the monomyth is called the the meeting with the goddess component um again we talk of uh, princess leia in star wars uh the 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 the, the you know you know you have uh Mark Hamill there playing Luke Skywalker, the sun. Um, of course, the, one of the premier sun gods is Apollo. Uh, Apollo had the lunar sister, Diana. Um, so, of course, you know, Leia is the lunar sister. She's always running around in the white robes. Mm-hmm. Um, we think of the character of Galadriel in Lord of the Rings, sort of the, the, the philosopher. Um, yeah, I mean, sacred feminine. You're talking about like Alice in Wonderland. Um, certainly, my goodness, I guess I guess one of the one of the real, um, you know, Sophia characters who helps bring the wisdom would be Trinity in the Matrix films, um, in the in, 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 in Gnostic literature. Um, and again, this comes out of the Gnostic library, uh, the, the Nag Hammadi texts. Um, there was a, a sacred Trinity where the, the, the sacred feminine known as Sophia um, was incorporated into the sacred Trinity. So again, her name's Trinity, very symbolic, very apropos. And of course, she's the one who puts Neo or Tom Anderson on his path of gnosis, path of enlightenment. So yeah, she, she would be a great example of this. Uh, another f- fantastic example is, I believe her name is Chani. Um, and this is the um, character uh, played by, uh, what's her name, Sean Young in Dune. Um, I mean, again, again, a great, a great example of meeting with the goddess. She helps uh, Paul become Moadib, you know, walk the path of enlightenment, go on, defeat the Harkonnens in Dune. Uh, the sacred feminine, the sacred warrior character, uh, the, 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 the warrior figure, uh, a, a great example of the sacred feminine is, is her in Dune. Yeah, the Sophia character is what you would call the sacred feminine. Uh, very important in, in the hero's journey. Um, she turns up as well. Um, very critical, the, 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 the female to counterbalance the male. Again, it ties into um, mystical philosophy, the union, the union of opposites, light and dark, sun and moon, male and female. Very powerful archetypal imagery in film. Um, and if you're interested, again, it's, it's, it's something I talk about in, in both the movie books. 
Well, that pretty much wraps up the foundation, and we are out of time. But you've been nice enough to agree to stick around. We're going to apply some of this knowledge uh, in a bonus episode about some movies specifically. Uh, but I want to end this episode with sure. with probably my favorite example in your book. Uh, this one made me laugh, and this is this is how I think this knowledge should be applied because I think this is great. Uh, you actually apply this to the Smurfs, um, and you talk about how the Smurfs live in a communist socialist society. Papa Smurf is Karl Marx, and he wears red and has a beard. There's a cat named Azriel, who's the angel of death. Um, it's so great. Well, that's right. I mean, you know, this, this material isn't always targeted for adults. It's targeted at children. And the entire Smurfs um, cartoon is just a parallel of communism, uh, you know, where you have, you're absolutely right. I mean, the Smurfs themselves, they live in a perfected communist society. They all live rent free, but they all, you know, do their own thing to help the com commune out. Um, you know, whether it's gardening or, you know, the mechanic or the guy, the philosopher that, you know, they all do their own thing. Uh, the, the, you know, sort of the guy who's the overseer of all this is Karl Marx, Papa Smurf. I mean, he even looks like Karl Marx. He wears the, you know, red Phrygian cap <laughs> of the proto-Marxist, right. Saint blows from the French Revolution. I mean, he's got the white beard there. And then you've got, um, I mean, you have some very mystical themes here. I mean, you have the whole idea with Gargamel, who's trying to undermine the Smurfs. You could look at him as the West or even Nazi Germany, uh, you know, you know, the arch enemy of the communists. Um, and, of course, you know, I mean, I mean, at one point it becomes very mystical. I mean, he, he engages in Gollum creation, alchemy, where he takes the inanimate clay and turns it into Smurfette. Um, and the whole purpose of Smurfette was to go into the perfected commune and just wreak havoc and, and undermine it. So, yeah, the Smurfs are uh, an interesting study in political theory, in, in, in cinema, <laughs> cartoons. Um, and, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's always I, I've done other shows on the Smurfs. You know, I've been asked about it, of course. And, um, you know, it is interesting where you'll find this stuff turn up and the uh, Smurfs are not immune to it. Very occult, very political, very esoteric. Uh, I, I think it's great. I think it's a perfect application of this knowledge because it's so true. I mean, it's it's just very interesting because you don't think about that. That's the hidden symbolism. Man, that's the stuff you're talking about, Rob. Big yeah, four. Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, so you're going to stick around. So if you enjoyed this, stick around. We're going to talk about movies in a second. Um, but for this, uh, Big Four, Robert W. Sullivan IV, Esquire, thanks for being on the program today. Oh, thank you, Dan, for having me on Fascinating Nouns. It was a great show. Love being here. And uh, anytime you're looking for another guest or you want to do another topic or something, I'd love to come back. Thank you. You got it, man. Um, and I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glenn co-production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Go to fascinatingnouns.com to listen to every episode or follow the show on social media. You'll find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. Plus, you can also subscribe to my newsletter, which will tell you all about upcoming guests as well as upcoming projects. And to never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Google Play. And if you like this, you'll love the other things that I do. Check them out at DanielJGlenn.com. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.